Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Real Nurses Real Talk, the podcast where profound and challenging conversations in healthcare are happening. Join us on this journey as we heal, empower, and inspire. Now get ready for thought-provoking topics and remarkable stories that will leave you forever changed. It's not just a job. If you want just a job, go find something else. Compassion comes from your heart. It comes from human touch. And sometimes there are no words. The whole time I'm doing compressions, my baby girl, she was nine years old at the time, same age. And it's times like that, it gets really tough. We can't wait for the healthcare system to be fixed, to be well. And if you don't feel like safety is an institution's number one priority and you see red flags, then you need to get out. I knew I had to be at a place where I said, God, even if you take my son, you're still good. Healthcare must stop talking about putting patients first and begin talking about putting patients at the center of the work that we do. I might, I might learn something. Welcome back to another episode of the Real Nurses Real Talk podcast. This is Brandon with my private investigator co-host, Aaron. Yep. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And we are going to jump right into it because we have a ton to cover this episode. Really, really quick. We did get some really great feedback from last episode. So thank you all so much for... Uh, for that feedback, a lot of people had said that they had never heard of the case before, mm-hmm. so it was kind of an introduction, which I think is cool, but we're just going to jump right into it. Well, actually, on that note, oh, okay. there were two people that wrote me in that have an interesting take on this. The first one is a, uh, they're both um, loyal listeners, I yeah. should say. Uh, the one works as a nurse practitioner in a neurosurgery office, uh-huh. and she was saying that they put nerve stimulators in for chronic or complex pain syndromes all the time, which is really cool because I didn't think we really saw a lot of it, but I guess in the emergency department, we have no... specifically said that she had never seen that much ketamine. Right. And she said that the stimulators work really well. Yeah. Typically, if... Their, their pain's almost controlled 90% is what she said, which yeah. is really cool. Then another one of our loyal listeners, actually one of my coworkers, she actually worked for a time, I can't remember how long, close to a year, I want to say, at all children's at John Hopkins. Oh. Yeah. So she had an interesting, she was in the pediatric ER, so yeah. she wasn't on the floor or whatever, but yeah. So she looks at this completely different because she actually was down there with the same, possibly with some of the same staff. So it's kind of cool. 
what is that like nine degrees of connection or something like that yeah i guess uh, is it nine i don't remember okay it's something anyway so right, let's get into it okay so we left off last week with the doctors and the staff at john hopkins they were contacting the child abuse hotline and they reported Beata Kowalski for medical child abuse. So before Aaron gets too deep into it, let's go over some definitions surrounding child abuse. So medical child abuse or MCA refers to a child receiving unnecessary and harmful or potentially harmful medical care due to a caregiver's overt actions, including exaggeration of symptoms, lying about the history, or simulating physical findings or fabrication, or intentionally inducing illness in their child. Factitious disorder imposed on another, or FDIA, also known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy, is a very serious form of child abuse. The perpetrator, usually the mother, invents symptoms or causes real ones in order to make her child appear sick. Usually this is due to a maladaptive disorder or an excessive uh, attention-seeking on her part. Factitious disorder is a serious mental disorder in which someone deceives others by appearing sick, by purposefully getting sick, or by self-injuring. Whether the false medical claims are about someone else or yourself, this condition can be dangerous. It can lead to unnecessary medical tests and even procedures while the healthcare team tries to figure out what's wrong with the patient. When a child is involved, FDIA is considered a form of child abuse by the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. So I just wanted to put that all out there because these are some of the things that they were considering. So before we get started, I just want to make a disclaimer that this story is going, the story this week is going to involve mental, talk about mental health. It's going to be talking about child abuse, suicide, all the things that could be triggering to some listeners. So I just want to put that out there. If this is something that bothers you, any of those things, please skip ahead, maybe just read the summary. Um, But I just wanted to put that out there before we get started. One Saturday afternoon in the fall of 2016, which was where we kind of left off in our story, Dr. Sally Smith received a call from the pediatric ICU from a doctor named Dr. Sanchez at John Hopkins. Smith was the medical director of the, Dr. Smith was the medical director of the child protection team for, I feel like it's, is it Penel? Pinellas, Pinellas County. It's, okay. It's where John Hopkins was. Okay. Or where, sorry, where they lived, because you always report where the where, where the abuse happened, I guess. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Smith grabbed a piece of paper to take notes. The report she took down was related to Maya Kowalski. So Dr. Smith is a doctor with more than 30 years of experience in child abuse. She was a pediatrician first, and then they brought her on on this team. She explained in a deposition that her job as a child abuse pediatrician was to look through every piece of objective evidence to assess whether there was medical child abuse or physical child abuse. She did it all. Dr. Smith was not employed by John Hopkins, but she did have, like, she saw patients there. Okay. Or was contacted by that hospital. Dr. Sanchez, who's in the PICU, recounted several disquieting things about Beata Kowalski, including the pushing for unsafe doses of ketamine. We talked about 1,500 milligrams for her daughter. He also spoke about Maya shaking, squirming, and crying less when her mother was out of the room. Dr. Smith was particularly concerned to learn that Maya was already receiving regular ketamine infusions and agreed with Dr. Sanchez that it seemed unorthodox as an unorthodox way of treating CRPS in a child. 
So after hanging up, Smith logged onto the internal John Hopkins portal and began to read through Maya's medical records. By the next morning, however, Florida's Department of Children and Families had discarded the report for lack of evidence. And this happens sometimes. I know we we are mandated reporters, therefore Mm -hmm. we will mandate something that appears to be child abuse or maybe we even have a suspicion but sometimes we'll receive a letter thank you so much for your interest in the children in our communities however there was nothing to be found Mm -hmm. things like that yeah so a nurse concerned by the demand for such a powerful drug asked a social worker named deborah hansen to meet with the kowalskis and this is what deborah says they were very distressed there was a lot going on and maya was well let's just say captivating she was also thrashing about Hansen agreed that it was strange for Beata to demand pain medication before allowing any kind of routine test, which we talked about last time. A parent being uncooperative or failing to heed a medical professional's suggestion is considered a red flag for neglect, and Hansen filed a formal notice with the state. So there was two by Dr. Sanchez and by the social worker. So with the second report, the suspicion was no longer parental neglect, but rather overtreatment. Beata Kowalski, quote, is believed to have a mental issue, the report said. It was stated that Maya is not in pain and that mom insists that Maya is in pain. The department, it's like children's and families or something in Florida, accepted the second report and formally asked Dr. Smith to investigate. So this is what Smith said. I got medical records on that child going back to when she was a toddler that were probably from 30 different medical providers. To me, the activity looks like doctor shopping, and this deepened her suspicion that there was another explanation for Maya's strange pain. This was in addition to the unconventional treatments, including the repeated high-dose ketamine and hyperbaric oxygen. I don't know that we mentioned that last week. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, Smith began to develop a theory that she was the victim of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Mm -hmm. So the parent inflicts unnecessary testing or lies or things like that to the patient. So Dr. Smith visited Maya in the hospital two separate times for about 10 minutes each time. She spent a lot of time interviewing the parents. One of the things that they discussed was that the ketamine dose wasn't alarming. This is what the family said. But what was alarming was their daughter's level of pain. As Dr. Smith investigated, Beata and Jack Kowalski grew restless. On Monday, October 10th, just two days after Dr. Smith had been called, they told an attending physician that they wanted Maya discharged. So hospital staff, I mean, what do you do when you have a child who's under suspicion for potential abuse and the parents say, we're going to go? We tell them, you can't sign out AMA in this fashion. We will call CPS. We will also call police. Right. So hospital staff wanted Dr. Smith to complete her evaluation first, and they told the Kowalskis that leaving the hospital would be against medical advice, and if the parents attempted to take Maya home, they said they would be arrested. So to me, that's not alarming, because we say that a lot, and we have to call the police sometimes when uh, when a child comes in for a serious illness or maybe a potential abuse, and they leave. However, maybe it was the way they said it. Sure. Like, the parents are already stressed out, and then they say, well, if you take your kid, you're going to be arrested. Yeah. So just to kind of lay that out there. So early on Thursday, October 13th, um, Smith filed a report chronicling Maya's extensive medical history. Her formal diagnosis was Munchausen syndrome by, by proxy. The other name was the factitious disorder imposed on another. 
Dr. Smith wrote in her report that Beata would often veer off regarding herself getting no sleep for weeks and would recount the struggles of working to maintain her insurance and then also talked about selling their second home to afford the Mexico trip. So they have two houses. Mm -hmm. Just put that out there. One method of supporting a Munchausen by proxy diagnosis, diagnosis is a separation test. So you remove the child from the offending parent and see if her health dramatically improves. The state quickly issued what is known as a shelter order, directing that Maya be kept in the hospital and forbade, is it forbade? Mm-hmm. <laughs> forbade her from seeing her parents. So this was on day six of her hospitalization. It seems like it, it was a long process, but really less than a week. So as weeks went by, though, with Maya isolated, she continued to report extreme pain. Dr. Smith, still not buying this CRPS story, began to wonder if something besides Munchausen by proxy could explain what was happening. So she instructed doctors to secretly videotape Maya and ask nurses to try to catch the girl moving her legs. So I want to put a caveat in here. A lot of hospitals, for this very purpose, they have rooms in which they can videotape children. I'm sure some hospitals will do that if they are there with a psychiatric evaluation. They can monitor them. But this is actually videotaping. And I don't know about consent and all that, but just saying. So Dr. Smith defended these actions of videotaping, saying there were numerous instances during the video which were comparable to numerous observations of the physical therapist, the nurses, the child life staff, even the musical therapy staff, that the child would be moving around in bed, putting her feet in a normal, neutral position, and using her upper body and her lower body in various movements. And she felt like that provided concrete evidence in support of all the observations that were made by hospital staff. So she heard all these things, but that was just hearsay. And of course you have your documentation, but she wanted video evidence of this. Yeah. So one employee texted Dr. Smith one day and just said, I just went to see Maya. I watched her use her feet to push herself several feet in her wheelchair. She was distracted and I'm not even sure she realized she did it because I didn't call attention to it. And so Dr. Smith said, fortunately, at 10 years of age, she can't perform this charade effectively 24-7 and doesn't even know if she's making uh, physiological mistakes. I'm coming to take some pictures of her, quote unquote, affected legs. And this was in a, a text message from the staff to Dr. Smith. So this was in October. So by December, that's how long she stayed. A hospital pediatrician had changed Maya's diagnosis from Munchausen by proxy to factitious disorder. It meant that Dr. Smith and the doctors no longer suspected that her parents were causing her illness. It was an accusation that Maya was making everything up. All right, so that is something that I have never heard before. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that that was that diagnosis was even which one the factitious disorder was even attributed to Maya while she was in the hospital. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So they felt like it wasn't that the mother was pressuring the child to fake illness or saying you're sick or causing it. Causing it. Yeah. Of course, she was demanding all these ketamine treatments, which kind of got them confused and initially we're saying Munchausen by proxy, but then with the mother separated, you're supposed to see this complete change because usually the parents, I mean, I've read stories where the parents put fecal matter in your IV access, yeah. like to keep yeah, them there. Wild yeah. Crazy stuff. But this, they felt like was her faking her disorder. And you have a parent who is just at their wits end trying to get right stuff. and giving lots of attention yeah. and all these things. Okay. So, Um, So we're going to take a quick break from the story to talk about the child welfare system in Florida. Every state's different, but Florida's 
completely different. So Florida privatized its child welfare system in 2004. And the work in that county that I can't pronounce is outsourced to a company called Suncoast Center Incorporated. And Smith was part of its 117 or so employees. So the biggest change to the system came in 2014. That year, the Miami Herald investigated a DCF policy, which is the Department of Children and Families. Um, They investigated a policy known as family preservation, which prioritized keeping troubled families together as a way of reducing the number of children entering foster care. I feel like that's the goal with a lot of places, like do everything you can to keep the kids with the family. Sure. Sometimes it's to the detriment of the child, however. So the newspaper found that under this policy, over a six-year period, 477 children died after the state was alerted to signs of mistreatment. Oh, wow. To me, that is substantial. Yeah, And that's saying we need to change some things. So in response, the government enacted a major overhaul of Florida's child welfare protocols, explicitly placing emphasis on child safety above the interest of parents. It's also Florida law that all citizens are mandatory reporters. Anyone who suspects a child is being harmed must notify the authorities and failing to do so can lead to a third degree felony conviction. Wow. So that's something that is not the case in our state. Yeah. It's just teachers, psychiatrists, physicians, are there nurses. Any other one? nurses. I'm sure police are on there as well. The state also requires that nearly all suspected cases be evaluated by a child abuse pediatrician. So pediatrician, board certified pediatrician, but also specializes in child abuse. Uh, it's a subspecialty that was codified in 2009, and Smith was just one of 275 doctors nationwide to be certified in the field that year by the American Board of Pediatrics. So trained to look for abuse and neglect, they definitely found it. From 2009 to 2018, there have been a 55% more child abuse reports filed by medical professionals, according to an analysis by the Marshall Project. So that's quite a jump. So even when all children's, back to the story, even when all children's accepted Smith's findings that Maya was faking her condition, going so far as to say that the strange bumps and lesions that continued to appear on her arms and legs and forehead were all self-inflicted. It did not alter her custody status, however, and she remained separated from her parents. So to me, I go both ways. I see it as, she needed some separation from them. Like what in her mind is causing her to fake these things? Does she have the conversion disorder that we talked about? Is she truly just have some psych psychological issues? Is this because she's in a home with her parents? Is this something completely unrelated? So I get why they continued with the separation to some degree. Do you know, was there communication back to the family about the findings from Dr. Smith? I don't believe so at this time. I don't think so. So the state shelter order was revised to allow Jack some visitation, the dad, some visitation rights, and would permit Beata to contact Maya by phone and video. But by December, Maya's social worker, whose name is Kathy Beatty, declined several of Beata's FaceTime calls, which went from daily to once a week. Several aunts and uncles offered to supervise Jack's appearance, but they were all rejected by the hospital for appearing to be too emotionally vested. This was something that the hospital administrators later said. 
Um, we also know that two teachers who had been making the drive from Venice to St. Petersburg to tutor Maya were also barred from the hospital. So she stopped receiving educational instruction. Um, but I haven't found out any information as to why this was done. I do know that there were also, this is just a report. The rest of this is as true as I can get it to be from the sources that I found. There was one during the court, they talked, they actually interviewed the chaplain or their priest or whatever. I can't remember his title, but he was barred from bringing communion to her as well because they felt like the mom, this was at the beginning, they felt like the mom could be putting ketamine in like the wafers or the juice for her. I mean, they went as th that far to bar the priest. Okay, this seems like it's getting a bit excessive. It does seem like it's like a dog with a bone. I so don't now know. that, well, but especially since they're it's been changing established it. that this is more of a, a Munchausen's right. case as opposed to Munchausen's by proxy. Right. Yeah, this seems like it's getting a little bit excessive. Yes. So the Kowalskis ended up hiring a lawyer to represent them in family dependency court. And at a custody hearing, the judge seemed somewhat skeptical about Maya's handling. And this is what the judge said, quote, if the hospital is prohibiting contact without solid medical reasons between the family and the child, that is a serious issue, end quote. So Beata, I would agree. Yeah, Beata yeah. even offered to move out of the family home if it meant that Maya could return. And then... But why? Why would you need the parent to move out when you've just established that it's a Munchausen This might have been because they got a lawyer pretty early on, okay. so it could have okay. been before. Um, here's my other thing that seems weird. At some point, they had to have been concerned enough to bring her to the hospital initially. Like all this talk about how bad she was, give her the ketamine, all these things. But now suddenly she's well enough to go home. To me, that seems odd. Yeah. So just to throw that out there. No one's ever mentioned that. But I thought to myself, like if they want her to go home with them, she has to be well enough to go home. So they obviously think that they could do better for her than the hospital was doing. Was the hospital still giving her ketamine? Not at this point, because when okay. she became the shelter in place, it's basically you get a hospital bed, but you're just being followed for social reasons okay. because of the, the child abuse um, allegations. So, I mean, that's the red flags right there, right? That you're no longer giving the ketamine doses because you're shelter in place. Right. And you're still able they to They were function. at some point, like I said last week, and they were trying to wean her off of all of her medications. Yeah. Um, so armed with reports from Dr. Smith, hospital attorneys argued that sending Maya home would expose her to harm. And the judge issued a series of, of continuances that kept her confined at John Hopkins. Uh, it was also at this court hearing the family begged john hopkins to transfer her to another facility but it was reported that no other inpatient facilities were willing to take this child because she was so complex hmm. i mean if i were another children's hospital close by i don't think i would take it either they're too far in it yeah that's crazy to yeah. me so a week later in january 2017 just before maya was to travel from the hospital to an to another hearing, Maya's social worker, Kathy Beatty, and a nurse entered her room and told her they needed to take pictures of her and needed her to take her shirt off. The hospital's risk management department wanted photos of her taken before the proceeding, I guess in case something happened or I don't know, but just to be on the safe side, I guess. Maya refused to cooperate. 
even when Beatty told her that if she didn't, she wouldn't be allowed to go to the courthouse and see her mom. Beatty began to forcibly remove her pants and shirt. Maya said later, quote, I was crying and saying, no, stop. She continued, but she wouldn't stop. So Beatty pinned me down, face down, and either she or the nurse took photos of me in my training bra and shorts. So that's a lot. Traumatic. Very traumatic. I, the only question that I have is she's no longer, she's not a consent, like she's 10 years old. She can't consent to medical treatment. She can't consent to photos, yes or no. However, it seems a little on the line of assault. Yeah, like who is, who is so if you are have this shelter in place order, who is? You're the, of the state. She was a ward of the state, basically, until either they completed the, um, what's it called? The investigation or got sent to a foster home. I, I, that's usually what happens, but she may have been, because I don't think they were contacting the family for anything. So sometimes, at least for our hospital, if a child, let's just say, comes in with some suspicious injury, like a femur fracture, but also has rib fractures and all this, until the investigation is complete, the parents are barred from coming right? completely. But I just don't know who has custody at that point. If it's a confirmed child abuse, usually the state does come in and either send a social worker or they immediately find a foster family. Yeah. So I mean, I'm I, not sure at what process they're in at yeah, this point. Okay. However, it seems a little assaulty. Yeah, I don't <laughs> like that. So I want to include all information because I think it's important. So it was later discovered, I'm assuming when they're getting this trial and everything ready, that Kathy Beatty, the social worker, had been fired from a previous position managing foster care children for Suncoast when she was arrested and charged with child abuse. Mm. Four fellow Suncoast employees called the police after they watched Kathy Beatty pin a 10-year-old little boy to the ground with his with her knees and cover his face with a blanket as he cried out that he couldn't breathe. In a deposition, Beatty denied using her knees on the child. But didn't deny covering up the kid's face with no. the blanket? No. I oh, mean, if you have four people that saying makes it better. Yeah. that you did that, that oh, does, yay, yay. I know that does not look good. So Maya got dressed. Yeah, and, she was... So she was fired, but then rehired? She's social work, which I guess she was a so she was managing foster care children. So social workers can do many different things. Yeah. So okay. I assume she was working for a different company. Okay. I don't know. Um, but yeah, she was fired for that. But I don't know how she has a job. So Maya got dressed and went to court. The Kowalski's family attorney asked the judge to allow Maya to talk to her dad and hug her mom, but the judge would not allow it, stating, quote, I'm afraid not. From what I've heard from the doctors, the status is uncertain at the moment, so we'll have to do without that today. That's on the judge. I know he's getting a report from the physicians and Dr. Smith, and I'm hoping that they're very objective and factual, but that's on the judge for not letting her hug her mother or talk to her dad in front of everyone. Like there's witnesses. Why don't you allow that to happen? And I don't know if they were just thinking that that might affect her psychological health. I don't know. So after 86 days of being separated from Maya, Beata and Jack Kowalski returned to their home. Jack was really worried about Beata because she looked very thin and very pale. He stated that she would be listless and could not stop crying. She just, 
didn't sleep most of the time. At their house, Beata picked up her car keys and told Jack she was going to go to CVS, but she didn't return until after midnight. And when she finally stumbled in, Jack was startled. It had been it, it was the first time in 13 years of marriage that he had ever seen his wife drunk. The next day, the family had plans to attend a birthday celebration in the neighborhood, um, and her son, their son was going to go as well. But Beata said she had a terrible headache. Later, when Jack returned from the party, their son Kyle's bedroom door was closed. Jack figured Beata was asleep inside because this had become her custom on most nights to sleep in her son's room. And Jack and Kyle watched TV until the boy fell asleep on the couch. The next morning, Jack bolted out of bed when he heard a scream. A relative who was visiting the house was yelling from the garage. Inside the garage, Beata was hanging motionless from the ceiling with an IV connected to an empty plastic normal sailing bag. She had written two suicide notes, one to her family and the other to the family's lawyer. And it says, quote, I'm sorry, but I no longer can take the pain being away from Maya and being treated like a criminal. I cannot watch my daughter suffer in pain and keep getting worse while my hands are tied by the state of Florida and the judge. She also wrote, please take care of Maya, but don't make her suffer anymore. She doesn't deserve that. No child deserves that. This whole case is literally a nightmare. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, it is for the family, it for is the hospital. literally a nightmare. Yeah. Because you think about being completely helpless in a situation. You feel like no one is listening to you. And now we're at the point of it's been shown by Dr. Smith that this is not an issue with the parents. It's not an abuse case from the parents, that it's very likely a Munchausen's case. Mm-hmm. And yet they're still being treated like it's a Munchausen's by proxy. Yeah. They're still being treated like they're the ones that are causing the harm. It's just you. So you've got you're working against the government. Mm-hmm. You're working against this private entity and you're working against the hospital. I mean, it's it's an utter nightmare. I knew just a little bit about this case. Mm-hmm. Didn't know all of this stuff. This is horrific. Yep. So after Beata's death, Maya was taken to a small private room where she found her father, her brother and their priest. Jack told Maya that her mother had died. They cried together. And after about an hour, Jack was told he had to leave. So a week later, Maya is ordered to be released back to her family by the judge. He stated it was against the hospital's advice, but he felt according to his own opinion, it's what was best for Maya. So now you're going to go against. Yep. Interesting. So sometimes I'm okay. Sometimes it's not. Yep. Okay. That's cool. A few weeks later in February, so this all happened in October, November, December, and then she was released, I think, in January. A few weeks later in February, an independent psychiatrist evaluated the family. She concluded that Beata never faked Maya's condition due to psychological purposes. The Florida Department of Children's and Families requested the case to be closed, and it was granted. Unbelievable. So one of the things that I haven't mentioned is that during these court hearings, Beata had two different independent psych evaluations about her mental status, all those things. And both of them said she does not seem to be suffering from Munchausen's by proxy, doesn't even have depression, which seems a little strange since she died by suicide. I mean, she just got to the end of a row. I guess so. You got to the end. It's just, I'm just, I'm speechless. It's un. Believable. Well, I got a little more. It's an absolute nightmare. (laughs) 
So multiple news articles, if you look it up, point out that Maya's condition worsened while she was there for three months. Her dad said she was so weak that he had to prop her up with stuffed animals in the car just to keep her from falling over. However, medical records reveal that when Maya was released from the hospital, she was only on three medication and she had actually gained four and a half pounds. Okay. Now all the news articles says she lost tons of weight and she was so weak she couldn't sit up. So do with that what you want. Yeah. So Jack took Maya to physical therapy and installed solar panels to heat their pool for aqua therapy. A year and a half later, Maya stood up out of her wheelchair, picked up her crutches, and slowly made her way across the room. And then after 12 more months of swimming, yoga, and exercise, Maya took her first unassisted steps in four years. Maya is now 17. She manages her pain with a daily regimen of intensive exercises. She says, I still have pain, but it's not as severe as it once was. She said, but I'm forever grateful for that. And then in March of that same year, she competed in her first figure skating tournament in five years, and she took first place. That seems odd to me, that she's an athlete. If you look picture, of pictures at her, she looks great. She has better to, quads than I do. It seems to point directly to her a, a Munchausen's yep. diagnosis. Yep, and at, at the beginning, I really pegged this mom to be the abuser. And then when I started reading it and studying and learning... I don't think that was it at all. I think she was stressed out and pressured from because of Maya's symptoms and no one saw it for what it was to treat it at the beginning. Like this child is inflicting these things on upon herself. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. So the Kowalski sued all children's John Hopkins, DCF, Suncoast, Dr. Smith and Kathy Beatty in October of 2018, and a judge determined that there was sufficient evidence for punitive damages to be awarded for the charges of battery and false imprisonment. Early this year, Dr. Smith and Sunco settled their portion of the lawsuit for $2.5 million. So we'll talk about the trial and the verdict and all those little pieces next week. Okay. A lot of information in there. It's just, uh, it's unimaginable what the parents were having to go through. I just, uh, again, it's part of the case that I had no idea about until I'm learning about it right here, probably learning about it with many of you. So and as a parent, it is just an absolute nightmare. So I listened to an interesting podcast that talks about this, talks about Munchausen quite a bit. And they interviewed a social worker from the other side of things. And she's a black lady. And she says that, especially in Florida, if you're and this, if you look at pictures of Maya, she's this beautiful blonde hair. I mean, her hair is almost like ice blonde, almost white, blue eyes, the f- perfect family, four members, all those things. Very wealthy, it seems like. Um, had a pool, had two houses, all those things. She said it's almost guaranteed that if your child gets injured in any way and they're in Florida and they're black, they're going to they're automatically going to be put in the system Hmm. and go through all of that. And she gave data and everything, but she said the white families don't have that problem. So the podcaster asked her, well, what do you recommend that families do if they're truly accused of child abuse? Like what, what should be their first thing that they do? And she says, get a lawyer, whether you hold one on retainer, get one on retainer or have a lawyer 
present for interviews, have them there so that they can help direct what you do. And I hope I'm not saying this for, for people. I hope everyone that listens to this podcast are wonderful people who would never abuse their children. But for those who are being accused and did nothing, yeah. that's what she said you should do. Yeah. And actually she's had families like her very first case. She went to the door, knocked on the door and said, hi, I'm with child protective services. I'm here to interview you. And the dad who was white, very educated, actually had friends who were lawyers said, no, I have every right as an American citizen to say you can't come in because she obviously didn't have a warrant. Right. So he didn't let her in. And she said, I was shocked because I guarantee if I go next door and the family was African-American, they didn't maybe didn't have enough money or maybe it was a Hispanic family or whatever it is. And they don't know anything about lawyers. They'd let them in. They'd let them question everything, start taking a report down. And she said, you have every right to say no. And I didn't know that. I didn't think about it. It just makes me wonder at what point John Hopkins lost sight of mm -hmm. the child. They, you know, on their website, and I think I have it on here, they've said in multiple news reports, they say John Hopkins All Children's Hospital is always has our priority is always the safety and privacy of our patients and their families. I just I don't know if that's true in this case. And I guess some of it will come out next week in the yeah. in the trial. So I'm looking forward to that. So, all right. Thank you for everybody that provided us with feedback on last week's episode. Would love. I mean, I feel like this case has taken a 90 degree turn yeah. here. Uh, did a complete 180, 90 degrees, 87.5, whatever you want to <laughs> say. But just completely different than when we first started. So if you've got thoughts, we would love to hear those as well. You can shoot us a, a, a message on our Instagram page. At realnurses underscore PC. Or shoot us an email at realnursespc at gmail.com. But in the meantime, until we see you next week, never forget that the work that you do matters. More importantly, you matter. And thank you for caring for our communities.